0: This is Tech Refactored Double Plus, where we have deep dive discussions that get into the details with researchers who are working on the front lines of technology policy. I'm Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. The rural digital divide, which refers to the challenges of connecting everyone in rural America to the internet and the opportunities that doing so affords, is one of the most pressing and difficult to solve public policy issues in America today. The Nebraska Governance and Technology Center's ongoing work in this area brings together experts from around the country that have been involved in digital divide policy to discuss the challenges and potential solutions to this problem. Last spring, we supported several research projects conducted by academics active in this area of research. Presentation of these projects was ultimately delayed due to COVID-19. Instead of the roundtable discussion that we had planned to host in person last April, we met virtually this past October to discuss their research. That discussion has been cut down for this podcast and will be presented in a series of episodes over the coming weeks as part of the Tech Refactor Double Plus series. These episodes will include short presentations from the authors and Q&A from other project researchers. First, we asked all of our authors to pre-record a short discussion of their research that could be shared with all of the Roundtable participants before we came together in October. We will start today by sharing the presentation recorded by Brian Whittaker and Roberto Gallardo discussing their paper on state broadband policy and impacts on availability. Please be sure to check out our website for more information about our work on the rural-digital divide including links to documents and more information about all of the participants and the work that they presented at this roundtable.
1: So I'm Brian Whitaker. I'm a professor and Newstack chair here at Oklahoma State University, and this is some work I've done with a colleague at Purdue, Roberto Gallardo, and our study is called State Broadband Policy, What Impacts Availability? And so the main question that we wanted to answer here is, what can states do to try to improve their overall broadband availability situation? Um, and so we gathered data from 2012 to 2018. We looked at the overall broadband availability during that time frame. and we looked at things like uh, fiber availability and the percentage of, of residents with access to more than one broadband providers, so we looked at a couple different uh, aspects of, of broadband. And we looked at the different policies that went into place over this time period. And so states took different approaches. Some states set up broadband offices to try to focus on this. Uh, Other states set aside their own distinct uh, funding that they set aside for broadband. And then other states had uh, restrictions in place on the type of entities that can provide broadband. In particular, a lot of states restrict cities from providing their own broadband network. And so we gathered data on where um, all these policies went into place over time. And so that was a, a pretty a monumental task that actually our, our colleagues at Pew Charitable Trust did. So they reviewed all uh, executive orders, state level statutes, governing directives back to like 1990. And, lo- and we, put it, we made a big uh, database of the ones that went into place between 2012 and 2018. So, for example, only four states had funding policies as of 2012, that went up to about 18 as of 2018. We kind of looked at those changes over time, and we looked at the changes in broadband availability at a, at a county level. And we, we also accounted for the other factors that we, we are widely recognized to influence broadband, so things like income levels, education levels, population density, topography, all those things that we, we recognize do influence the availability of broadband in a county. And so the bottom line is our our specification control for all those other factors. And even after controlling for those, we did find that policies made a difference. So, for example, the states that set up a broadband funding mechanism, they saw rates of availability that were one, one to two percentage points higher than states that did not have such a funding mechanism. And a similar story can be told for those state offices, the states that had dedicated offices for broadband. Uh, saw rates of of one to two percentage points higher, particularly for things like competition or or fiber availability. And we also found that, as we expected, the states that had municipal restrictions in place actually saw much lower rates of availability, so two to three percentage points lower for those states that had uh, restrictions in place on the types of of entities that can provide broadband. And so the bottom line from our research is that these state-level policies do matter it can have an impact on your overall uh, and rural broadband availability situation. And so um, we've kind of documented that the states that have invested in funding programs, yes, they saw a measurable impact of that. And the states that have uh, taken away their municipal restrictions, which actually a few states have gone on and said, we don't want these restrictions anymore. They did see their their rates also increased from, from getting rid of those restrictions. And so we hope to continue this work by looking at uh, additional policies in the future. But um, overall, this is a good starting point. This is really one of the first studies that have examined these state-level policies and their impacts on overall uh, broadband availability. And we hope that it's a a useful uh, bit of research for people working in this area.
0: Next uh, presentation and discussion will be by uh, Brian Whitaker. Brian is the uh, Sarkey's Distinguished Professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Oklahoma State University. Ordinarily, I thank him for making the drive up to Nebraska uh, don't need to do that this time. And uh, Roberto Gallardo is the Assistant Director of the Purdue Center for Regional Development and a Purdue Extension Community and Regional Economic Specialist. I'd say thank you for driving over here, but uh, this time we don't need to. Uh, so we uh, welcome bro- both of you to discuss your paper, uh, State Broadband Policy, Impacts on Availability. I believe there will be uh, a couple of slides for folks who are listening. Uh, those will be available on our uh, our website, though uh, the discussion shouldn't require you to see them. Okay, uh, Brian, Roberto, handing it off to you.
1: Thanks, Gus, and I'll, I'll start off here and see if Roberto wants to, to jump in as we go through it. So I did start to share a few slides with you guys, and uh, the onus for this work is basically that states have been trying different things over the years to improve their broadband availability situation, and so Roberto and I were interested in kind of answering the question of what works and what doesn't work to, to increase uh, broadband availability. Let me just kind of hop to our, our main research questions here. And the main research question we wanted to answer is, do state-level policies, broadband policies, impact overall availability? And in particular, do they affect rural broadband availability? Um, we, there's a ton of different state policies we could have looked at, and, but this is one of the few papers that have actually dealt, dug into uh, state-level broadband policy. So we focused on three specific ones. Um, the first is whether or not a state has a, a state broadband office uh, with full-time employees. There are a lot of states out there, like on am in Oklahoma, that have some kind of a, a state um, agency, but there's no full-time employees And so we wanted to specify that you did have to have have at least one full-time employee to to be considered a broadband office. The second policy we examined was the existence of a state-level funding mechanism. A lot of states have started to put their own dollars towards increasing uh, broadband, and we wanted to take a look at that. And then lastly, we looked at what states had policies in place that restrict uh, municipal broadband provision. We've kind of already seen a few papers on that. We know it's growing as uh, states are, or some cities are doing more to, to take things into their own hand and, and try to enhance their own broadband situation, but some, we know some states prohibit that. And so what Roberto and I did, and he's the data guru on this, so we cranked through all the FCC form 477 data that tells us where and where uh, where, where not broadband is available. And so we built this panel data set between 2012 and 2018 of all the counties in the US. So there's about 3,100 3, counties And we created our dependent variable was just the percentage of the population that has 25 25-3 broadband access. And we could also look at um, the rural only parts of every county by using the the census block classifications back in 2010. We had a couple of other availability measures or that we were interested in, which is the percentage of the population in that county that has access to fiber. We know fiber is kind of the the gold standard for for broadband, although we just heard fixed wireless can can, uh, argue with that. Um, And we also looked at the percentage of the population that offers, uh, has at least two providers offering a 25-3 service. We wanna look at kind of competition. We know there's a lot of other variables we're gonna impact uh, broadband availability. So we control for things like income, education, poverty rates, population density, all the things that we think are potentially going to impact um, broadband availability. And so here is a, a kind of a snapshot of what we what we ended up getting to, I should say that the Pew Charitable Trust has this great data set of what state policies are in place. And so we worked through all that and came up with a list of what state policies were in place at what time. And you can kind of see the changes that were made over our period of analysis between 2012 and 2018. Um, you can see the, the number of broadband offices. There were about five states that had them back in 2012 that jumped up to 25 by 2018. And similarly, the, the number of states with uh, with funding programs, uh, only about four back in 2012, and that jumped up to about 18 in about 2018. And then the number of states with municipal broadband restrictions stayed pretty constant at about 20 to, 20 to 22. There's a few states that actually got rid of their restrictions over that time. And so then um, I won't go into too much the, the uh, econometric details here, but we did control for the other things that we think are going to affect availability. We have this approach that takes into account um, the fact that it. There, we should you know look at a, an instrumental variables approach where we actually do control for some of the things that Sarah did in her paper with the um, that took into account the uh, the political nature of some states, whether or not they had more Republican legislatures uh, or, or residents. And the end result is that. And so here's kind of Roberto, maybe put this, this slide in here about. The summary in two slides, we have all these these, uh, county-level observations. We do a dynamic panel model. We take into account the things we expect to impact availability. the real question is, do these policies impact availability? Does the existence of state broadband funds, uh, a broadband office, or municipal restrictions? And so the summary is absolutely yes, even after controlling for all those things like income and education we know should affect availability these policies do. And so the ones that had the the largest impact were the municipal network restrictions. We found a a significant negative impact of that. So states that had those restrictions in place saw lower rates of availability than they otherwise would have. And we saw states that had their own broadband funding mechanisms in place had a a measurably higher rate of uh, rural availability and overall availability uh, than they otherwise would have. So I'll stop there and see if Roberto has anything else to add um, and happy to answer some questions from you guys.
2: I would just like to point out, notice the state broadband funding was significant in the rural setting on all three accounts. Uh, so that's, that's important to kind of not forget to beat the drum on that um, because it's it's really important as, as a, uh, folks here know it's, it's expensive to build uh, these networks in, in less dense areas. So that's all I just wanted to add, Brian, thank you.
0: Okay, well, thank you both. Um, we have a couple of questions uh, already in the queue, uh, Tim, Brent, and Sarah. Um, uh, Brent, uh, might, uh, have had to step out again for a moment. So we'll do uh, Tim, then Sarah, then, uh, uh, hopefully Brent, if you want to, again, uh, the queue, if you have a question, let me know. I know, uh, we might have, uh, a couple more, uh, as well. Um, and if worse comes to worse, I'll ask questions of my own. So Tim, to you. Very good.
3: Thank you, Gus. Appreciate that. Uh, Brian, my question might uh, have uh, stemmed from not being able to see the forest for the trees. Uh, When when I read your paper, very interesting, by the way, uh, I was uh, curious as I read through it, where are those restrictions uh, on municipal broadband lying? But I think you just answered it in your intro here, uh, because I think you told in your intro that it's all state based but as I read through your paper, I was really curious uh, if if it was all state-based or if you find any uh, local provisionings that's preventing um, municipal broadband.
1: So good question, Tim, and and you're right. We did focus, you know, explicitly on state-level policies. If you go to, one of the great things about that Pew database is you can go to, um, you know, a particular state, click on a policy and it actually shows you the underlying legislation that. Was passed in a specific year, so these are specific state level policies. But your point is well taken because some states do have kind of a workaround. So Colorado, for example, you know there is a, there was a state level restriction, generally speaking, but municipalities could vote around it. And so some states have kind of provisions like that that basically say if you get you know, enough people to to vote that, yes, this is something we want, then you can kind of override that restriction. So that is something we see happen uh, a couple of times, but generally speaking, these are state level policies. And and again, the Pew database has them all uh, in format where you can look at them. There's actually a couple other sources now, I was just finding one that's been more recently updated and it lists the states and the the policies that that they have passed. And typically they are at the state level. Thank you.
0: Sarah, to you, and then Angela, I believe we also have a question uh, uh, from you um, that we can go to uh, after Sarah.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a really nice paper, and I looked up the other paper that um, Roberta put in the chat, so it- Sounds like you guys are doing like really interesting work at the county level. I wondered if enacting a state broadband office is like a lagging or leading indicator, like if people in that state are already interested in connecting their citizens, then they'll establish the broadband office. So the causal question. And then I also wondered if you guys did like F testing on um, whether municipal broadband restrictions are correlated with the broadband office um, being there. So just like, you know, what's happening at the state level?
1: To answer your first question, you know, the way we modeled it is we considered the state broadband office to be, we assumed it was a leading indicator. So we looked at availability in time t and model it as the scope, the, a function of, is there a state broadband office in t- period t minus one? So we assumed it was kind of this, this leading indicator. That's a good question. We didn't look at it the other way around. Uh, but that's something we could go back and explore. So that's the way we assumed it was going to be. But, you know, I saw your question earlier and actually went back to the data and kind of looked at this the simple correlations between uh, state broadband office and, and municipal restrictions. And there wasn't a whole lot of correlation there. It was positive, but it was like 0.1 or 0.15. So not a whole lot between, you know, the presence of the state broadband office and municipal restrictions. The way we entered our... Uh, variables of interest into our regression. We we did them one at a time because that the GMM method kind of assumes one at a time typically. And so we didn't do um, an F test uh, kind of looking at the overall effect, but um, well, I should say we did run a single regression with all three of them, the results were very similar. So I don't think we have a a collinearity problem or anything like that because they were very similar to when we entered them individually and when we combined them all as all policy variables.
0: Okay. Uh, Thank you, Brian and Sarah. Angela.
2: I think my question is a little bit similar to Sarah's, but I kind of wondered the same thing, like what, if you, if you saw any anecdotal evidence almost, or other thing, interesting things that you ran across with this broadband office, were there other initiatives that you noticed that came alongside of this office that you thought might, might be helping this, you know, what you saw in the data, right? And then I also noticed the state level broadband offices um, were doing better with the fiber availability too, which I thought was really interesting.
1: Yeah, and and one of the cool things, that, you know, Roberto and I have come across as we've been doing this research is every state has a participant in what we call, and in what India, NTIA is calling the State Broadband Leaders Network. And so we've made some really cool contacts in every state and some of them are doing awesome stuff. Like, you know, we. If you look at North Carolina as an example, they're doing some really cool stuff in terms of engaging people at a low, at a community level, which may have led to some municipal broadband uh, projects, as you suggested. Uh, The people in Georgia have created an awesome map that shows uh, how bad the FCC data is and and how it compares to their version. So there are a lot of good examples like that. And Pew actually has a nice study that showed that kind of highlights a few of them and some of the things that they've taken on. Um, so I would suggest looking at that and kind of looking, you know, getting a better feel for some of the on-the-ground efforts that each of these offices is doing and, and having and making, you know, productive grounds. And Roberto, do you want to add anything there?
2: Yeah, Angela, that's a great question. And, and by the way, one of the things we did not look to interpret the state offices was policy diffusion effect on the policy po- uh, public policy side where the neighboring state has it, oh, we're falling behind, we have to enact, Right. We, we did not control for that. That's a different kind of research uh, method um, approach. but we I think what Brian is saying and is that we are assuming that you know there has to be because there are many states that have kind of, I don't know how could I call it uh, they're not like official. That's why we were very clear that you had to have staff that were doing involved in this because otherwise you may have a governor appointed, you know, task force that are volunteers. And there you go, I checked the box, right? So there are. there's a lot of nuance there that we did not kind of go into the weeds. But the, the side as a public policy guy that I'm really interested in for future research is looking at the policy diffusion effect between, okay, who started, right? And then kind of goes into domino effect after that. And because of COVID, obviously, if it was not on their radars, I think it is now. So-
0: Yeah, And I'll uh, just add, I I think a really interesting uh, future, either a target of an audience for your research or future direction for research is understanding which different state policies have which types of effects um, and which uh, 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 state broadband offices are more effective at different approaches uh, than not. Um, I I know uh, Matt has uh, a couple of thoughts uh, about uh, working with the state level broadband offices.
3: Yeah, so I I just wanted to throw out, I've worked with three states now. Um, We've actually done a successful grant with uh, the state of Colorado to build out service in Jackson County. Uh, We've done a couple of grants with Nebraska uh, through the Internet Enhancement Fund uh, and then uh, CARES Act this year. And then uh, in Wyoming, we didn't, they, they had nothing for the longest time. They finally created a broadband office and created a a state fund. They haven't been able to grant anything from the state fund, but uh, the broadband office that they put together uh, was extremely successful and they had basically nothing to work with. Uh, The grant program didn't really work, Um, but what they did is the guys they hired went around and provided focus. And he went and talked to the individual areas and did a lot of interaction with providers. And I can give you an example, uh, he was meeting with a town that was kind of on the fringe of our service area and after meeting with them, they said, well, we need, we need another alternative. We need more competition in our, our downtown. And he called me up and I said, well, can they put us on their water tank? And he asked them and they said, come up. So we were there the next day and had service within like 30 days in this town. And all he did was he went around the state making connections between providers and people that needed service. And it was one guy, and I think he had two staff people that were helping. And they had no money to work with and they were extremely successful. And then when uh, that guy left and his replacement was available when the CARES Act money came up and they stood up a CARES Act grant program that I think put out $80 million and they put the entire program together within a month. But the foundation of that program was laid over the previous two years because they knew exactly where all their hotspots were, where they didn't have middle mile, where they had issues with last mile. And that's one of the things it seems like a lot of these states don't really have that. Um, Colorado, uh, as far as I know, did not get a CARES Act program, broadband grant put together. Nebraska did, it was under the Department of Economic Development, but I don't think Nebraska really has somebody that goes out and just like quarterbacks and goes out and connects with the public, you know, and travels around and actually meets with people. And that seemed to be a big missing element in a place where certain states were a lot more successful at least in my experience, is where they spend, where they have a broadband office that's very active and not just focusing on the providers. They were very focused on end users and finding the places where there were issues and trying to get those people help with providers. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as something that probably would not show up in a, in a analysis of numbers, but was tremendously effective in real world.
1: I think that's a great point, Matt. And that's some of the examples that you'll find in that peer report is the, the kind of networking and the kind of workshops that they held with end users as well as, as providers themselves.
0: And it, it also highlights the the difference between uh, throwing resources at the problem and removing barriers to the problem. One of the things that we've seen in many different contexts of, uh, of build outs, both private and municipal, is uh, uh, reducing uh, roadblocks, making it easier to get access to rights of way uh, and things like that. And the, the example of... Uh, all the money in the world wouldn't have helped uh, you, Matt, get your uh, 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 transmitters on top of the water tower. You just needed permission to put them up there. Um, so a, a different approach and understanding perhaps, uh, uh, Brian and Roberto, uh, those different uh, approaches that states take um, uh, could also be uh, useful to look at. Uh, Michael, you have a question.
1: Yeah, uh, it was a uh, really interesting paper. Um hadn't, hadn't really looked at like state broadband policy before. Um, but I was curious, um, just kind of thinking through like what possible interaction effects there could be between state policies and federal policy. Um, so for instance, in the paper that Brent and I will present, we find pretty strong disparities in universal service support among states. So I do wonder to what extent, um, USF disbursements could have a significant relationship or possibly even be a causal factor in, uh, states adopting their own policies, right? Like states could feel they're getting the short end of the stick and need to, uh, adopt their own state broadband offices to address their problems? Yeah, it's a great question. And I actually filed uh, FOIAs on, for, for the USF and for the Connect America funds to look at county level disbursement and got basically nothing usable. So, so we tried to do that. What we could do is look at the state level to see where those funds were distributed and how they correlated with the, the, the variables that we did have. And we found negative impacts. So, so for example, you know, um, places with their own state offices, you know, were not very successful in getting uh, those federal programs. And one thing we do mention at the end of the paper is that a lot of the federal programs say you're only eligible for this if you don't have state level funding that go to this area. And so we mentioned that briefly and and Roberto and I kind of make the point that, Hey, that's, you know, it's not very efficient. You know, if you, if we could combine those funds, we'd probably be a little bit more effective at getting uh, broadband out to some of these more problematic areas. And so that's something we, we definitely uh, thought about, but unfortunately couldn't control for everything.
0: Yeah, I'll uh, use that to ask uh, everyone. I think this echoes some of Matt's earlier comments. Uh, Brian Roberto, you might have thoughts on this. I wouldn't be surprised if everyone has thoughts on this. Um, as Matt said uh, in our last discussion, Um, these are very fact-specific localized problems frequently, or they require localized solutions. Um, That's not the approach that the FCC has historically taken. They've uh, uh, targeted funding for specific technologies. They've moved to a more uh, um, technology-neutral sort of approach. But I I wonder, would it does it make sense for the FCC to be funding individual providers or specific providers providing service in specific regions, or would it make more sense to allocate more of the federal funding uh, for these issues to the States and then rely on the state uh, broadband deployment offices, uh, uh, state regulators to figure out how to address the broadband needs. Um, I I don't know if anyone has strong views uh, about that. I can, Think of strong arguments both ways. Uh, Roberto was was that a, waving your hand because you want to jump in on that?
2: I would even go further and and let communities get the money, uh, not to build their own broadband network necessarily, but to offer it as an incentive for for investor, you know, builders like Matt, because right now they're at the mercy entirely at the mercy of the providers, and and. Anybody can apply, at least here in Indiana for some of the grants, but at the end of the day, can you, can you deploy the service, can you, so you end up with providers only. I've seen in my planning efforts with local communities, Gus, that's exactly the frustration, is that they know by word of mouth and because, you know, they get, uh, you know, heat all the time of where broadband is not okay, and it's not reflected in the FCC data. But then, when they bring a provider, the provider will decide where to go, and the and the community still is on the sidelines, right? So I would I would take it a a, a step further and, and argue with proper safeguards and so forth. Let the communities get the money, not to build their own network, but to offer it as an incentive, just like they do a manufacturing industry, right? When it's they're moving into the area. So there,
3: that's my my spiel. But I I would I would back that up but I I would also throw out there's something I've observed and I call it this I call it the vortex and it's like this combination of consultants system vendors and politicians and the three of them kind of feed off of each other so a lot of times what I've seen is the community the first thing they do is they pay a consultant to come in and tell them about their broadband problem and what they need to do about it and then they, the, the politicians get all worked up about it. We need to do broadband, whatever, and they provide the funding for the consultant, then they hook them up with a system vendor, and then they spend a lot of money on these big projects. Whereas the approach that you're advocating, which is we will provide either access to our existing infrastructure and partial funding to help the provider that comes in and fixes the problem for us, is a much more simple and direct solution, but... Uh, that other, that vortex just goes around and around and around. And like, I've seen, I I've seen communities spend, you know, 50, hundred thousand dollars on having consultants come in to fix a problem that we could have just taken care of the problem for them. If instead of, instead of doing consulting about it. Uh, and that's, that's one of the issues. And, uh, I wanted to point out another thing, uh, is that a lot of the funding that's been available in the past was only available to certain providers. So telephone companies, sometimes cable companies, a lot of times cellular carriers, they tend to be larger corporate entities that do a lot of lobbying for funding. And that was a huge restriction. So one of the things that I especially like about the new reverse auction model you know, that we're seeing with the Connect America Fund and with the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund is that that was opened up to be technologically neutral. So you can see stuff like SpaceX is gonna have a shot Uh, fixed wireless operators were extremely successful in CAF2. Um, We're seeing electric co-ops that are looking to do gigabit fiber on their existing poles to get out to customers in rural areas. I think opening the federal side feels like it's opened up considerably. It used to be, it was a telephone company got the money period. And now I think opening that up, we're going to see, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens after RDOF because this might be, The changing of the guard where a lot of the traditional telecom uh, structures are finally, you know, we're going to put the stake in the heart of that vampire finally and get it to where we've got a lot of different companies that are coming out with innovative approaches to delivering broadband.
0: So uh, we, we need to uh, transition to our next topic, our next uh, paper, but uh, I uh, want to just highlight, uh, Matt, Matt noted the success of the fixed wireless uh, operators in the Connect America phase two uh, reverse auction. I think one of the most interesting empirical projects that we're probably reaching the point someone could undertake right now is how the fixed wireless operators who uh, uh, won funding in that auction are doing in beating in meeting their build-out benchmarks compared to non-fixed wireless uh, operators, traditional operators. Because one of the questions and challenges with uh, universal service funding historically has been, you give these operators a big pot of money and they don't meet their build-out commitments. Well, what do you do? You've just lost three years of build-out time yeah, you can claw the money back, but you've lost that time. So uh, it'd be really interesting if we could get a sense of, is the deployment meeting the benchmarks? Uh, Is it exceeding it uh, between these different technologies? For anyone interested in undertaking yet another empirical project, hint, hint, uh, send me an email. (laughs) I'm Gus Hurwitz, and I've been your host for this episode of Tech Refactor Double Plus. Until next time, keep closing that divide. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at NGTC, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu, or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL NGTC. You can listen to or download our podcast on our website or find us on Apple Podcast and Stitcher. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series, hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The Nebraska Governance and Technology Center is a partnership led by the Nebraska College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska. Colin McCarthy produced and recorded our theme music. Casey Richter provided technical assistance and advice. Elsbeth Majilton is our Executive Producer and Lysandra Marquez is our Associate Producer.